God, we know whenever you're moving that, that there's pushback. And so, God, I thank you that you have a message for us this morning. And I thank you that Brandon is not seeking for his flesh to be strengthened, um, to be able to deliver this message in, in his power. And so, God, I ask that you would set him aside and that you would speak through him. God, that you would have your word have free course here in all of our lives, that you would speak directly to each and every one of us, that you would show us not only what we need to hear, but how we can apply it this week. God, I ask that you would God, just prepare us to hear from you, prepare us to see the message that you have, and, and give us the courage and strength to live out whatever it is that, that you're showing us this morning. Lord, I do ask that that you would help Brandon to get through this message, that he wouldn't be speaking at all in, in any of his, his desire or his opinion, but that it would be your word that's communicating to us. Um, Father, I ask that you would get all of the glory from this morning, that you would have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Okay, so we are in Acts chapter 4. We've been in Acts for the last few months. Um, and the study of, of Acts has been very intentional on my part, um, I think it's, it's, it's a timely message for where we're at as a ministry. Um, for all of the reasons that have been, you know, before stated. Uh, but uh, particularly as we go into, days, into today's message, um, I think that what we need to get out of this message is exactly what the title of this message is. And that's to have a fearless witness. To have a fearless witness. Um. You know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, stuff, stuff being written, being taught. You know, uh, there's been a lot of writings done on character qualities of different generations of people, right? And as far as we can tell uh, right now, this is probably one of the most anxious, uh, fearful, uh, insecure uh, generations that, we, that we've ever seen in America uh, that's coming up. And uh, I just finished this book, and I, in fact, I just recommended it to, to several of you over the last week, is this book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it's basically a warning is, uh, of if we continue down the path that we're going, uh, that we will grow to be weaker and weaker uh, as a society. And, um, and, and there's all kinds of factors, right? We don't have time to get into those things. But you guys see it. You see it. Um, we, can, we can quantify it by the number of people that we come in contact with that are depressed, okay? We can quantify, uh, we can make the connection very easily between depression and insecurity and anxiety and fear, and we live in a generation, and as we continue to go move forward into the future, a generation that is growing more and more uh, trepidatious, uh, safe, safe, playing things safe. You know, a few years ago when I was, I teach high school, and a lot of you guys know that, it was just like five or six years ago, it was like when students graduated from high school, they were like wanting to be adventurous. I remember when Montana graduated, he wanted to go backpacking around the world, and like he wanted to live in like a cardboard box, and there was like something, you know, he had read that dumb book, Into the Wild. It's a dumb book. <laughs> we could debate that. We can debate that later. Right, millennials still have that into the wild mentality, but like as we're moving beyond that, man, all the kids that are graduating are saying, "Uh, yeah, I just want to stay close to home. I just want to stay close to home. And there's all these measurables. I could talk about this for hours and hours. But uh, but, but what I am seeing, okay, and and I I see it clear as day, is that, that people are growing more insecure and more safe in the way that they live. 
Now here's the dilemma that it poses to Christians. If we choose to adopt that kind of cultural perspective, if that becomes who we are, we will fail to deliver the gospel to the world. Because the delivering of the gospel to the lost is a risk-taking endeavor. It is anything but safe. It is anything but safe. So the dilemma for Christians, for the dilemma for Kaya specifically is, if we are a culture afraid of risk, can we live the Great Commission? If we are a culture afraid of risk, can we effectively live the Great Commission? Who's going to go? Who's going to go? You know, one of the things I pray about a lot, especially recently as this ministry begins to mature, is over the next few years, God, who are you going to raise up to go to a foreign mission field? And if I'm going to be real honest right now, our prospects seem very, very low. I don't hear people talking about it. I don't hear people preparing for it. I don't hear leaders saying, I want to go to fill-in-the-blank somewhere that is culturally inconvenient for me to go. I don't, I'm not hearing those, those conversations. And year after year, we have Mission Focus Conference, and everybody seems very excited, okay, excited by, by the gospel, excited by the mission, all right, excited to go on a short-term mission trip. But who's actually preparing to go? And I'm afraid that we're afraid of risk. If we are a culture of political correctness, I wonder if we can actually speak boldly. If we are a culture who chooses to live under the constraint of, of political correctness as it's defined right now in 2018, if we are to live and abide by that way of thinking, can any of us actually have the liberty to be bold with the people that we know? I'm not sure. If we are a culture of entitlement, which is, you know, they, they apply that to us, and they, and they do it probably rightfully so, that we're raising up a culture of entitlement with handouts, wanting everything customized specifically to the way we want it, so much so that we want our classrooms, our college classrooms, our, our, our professors to bow to our every whim or need as though we get to somehow dictate to them how they teach and what they do and how they create a, an environment that's, that's predisposed to exactly what we want. Everywhere we go, things are customizable. And we're looking, we're looking for handouts and we're looking for ways for things to be fit to us. And I wonder if we are a culture of entitlement, can we actually die to personal desires necessary to the propagation of the gospel? If we are a culture that bids for acknowledgement, you know when I, when I say bids for acknowledgement, I mean on a daily basis searching for likes on our Instagram. If we're living lives looking for reputation and opportunities to be noticed, I wonder can we actually live with no reputation? See, here's the deal, Christians. Our desire must be that in the midst of the oppression, okay, I'm going to call it oppression because it is. It's cultural oppression. An oppression of safe spirituality. We need to choose to be fearless. And that is why we are studying Acts. And as we look at Acts chapter 4, 
we are going to see two men, Peter and John, who model for us exactly what it means to be fearless in our witness. Where we last left off in Acts chapter 3, we were reading the story of Peter and John and the healing of the lame man. Now we know from Acts that God used these two apostles and all the apostles to do signs and miracles that they might point people to the gospel. That's why they were doing signs and miracles. Now, if we look at Scripture, just doctrinally, I want you to understand this. We don't have time to camp out here. But if you look at, if you look at the Acts of the Apostles, what you see is that no other people besides the Apostles were doing miracles. Do you understand that? That has, a, that has a doctrinal implication for us. And in fact, as we continue throughout the New Testament, we hear about miracles being done, but we see it happening less and less, even so much so, The the Apostle Paul, who we read about doing miracles, has friends that are sick, and he's asking the church, hey, pray for this sick person. Okay, someone who previously laid hands on people and healed them. In other words, what we see is that as the progression of the New Testament continues, the miracles are happening less and less because they're less needful because the Word of God is becoming complete. All right? And so I I want to point out to you, in a world where there are are, uh, false doctrines being taught, that say that the common individual should be uh, facilitating these types of spiritual gifts, I want you to be very aware of what the Bible actually teaches. That there was the apostles that were working these miracles with the intent that the gospel would spread at a rapid pace. And it did. Now the story was that Peter and John are walking to the temple. Do you guys remember that? They're walking to the temple to go pray, and they come in contact with a man who is begging at the temple gate. And this man was lame from birth, and he calls out to them for money. And Peter turns his attention to this man, and he stares at him. In fact, it says that that his gaze was fastened on him. And with great intentionality, he speaks. Verse 4 of chapter 3 says, And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none. But as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Now following this great miracle, the people began to gather around Peter and John, and Peter began to preach. You guys remember that? So the miracle does exactly what it was intended to do, create opportunity for gospel influence among the Jewish people. And so the end of chapter 3 is Peter preaching a message. And we kind of get left with a cliffhanger there. All right, He preaches his message, and then chapter 4 begins. All right, So are you ready? Verse 1 says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Okay, now now, Peter is mid-message, and these religious leaders, they come and they interrupt the message that's being taught. And they, they go and they lay hold, they seize upon Peter and John. They capture them. Now, It says here the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees. So who were these men? 
And what right did they have to come and lay hold on them? So we learn in verse 5 that this is a group of rulers, elders, scribes. It says that Annas the high priest. Now this is most likely Annas the high priest that, that ruled until about 15 uh, A.D. Okay, or I'm sorry, 15 B.C. Right? That's, is that correct? Yeah, I always get my A.D. and my B.C. all mixed up. Um, I, that, they teach you that in third grade, by the way. You know, uh, so that shows you what intellectual level I'm I'm working with. Uh, but so he rules for about 15 years. That's what I, I know that for a fact. And then Caiaphas takes over, and what we see is, if you read the Gospels, what you see is uh, Caiaphas ruling during the, 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 uh, the time of the persecution of Christ and the crucifixion, and he he's major, plays a major role in the trial of Jesus. You guys remember that? Annas is present, but he directs them to Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas is the high priest, and he rules for another 15 years until about 36. Okay? Now, after that, Annas' son, Caiaphas is Annas' son-in-law, and what we have is Annas' son, this isn't confusing yet, ruling at, from there on. And so what you have is potentially both Annas's, okay, and Caiaphas, and the scribes, and the elders. I mean, this is, this is a, uh, quite the religious crew here, all right? And these men are referred to as the Sanhedrin. You can read about them in the Gospels, okay, uh, all throughout um, the Gospels, in fact, and even during the, the crucifixion, they played a huge role in the trial of Christ. Now, these men uh, were the Jewish council. Okay, they were the Jewish council. And they had, now, they had limited governmental power. They, they didn't have authority uh, like the Romans did, but they had some level of, of governmental power. And they could exact some level of, of execution of that power. And here we see that being used. They, they capture Peter and John, and they put them in a hole, which is essentially uh, a prison, or jail, a jail cell. Um, but, but more importantly, these men's power did not have much to do with government, but their power had everything to do with cultural things. Okay? Their power and their authority was primarily cultural these men essentially oversaw all of Jewish life, not just affecting the matters of the temple and the religious interactions, but, but commerce and the cultural livelihood of individuals and families. They had the authority to make people prosper or cut them off completely. They could excommunicate. They could socially isolate. They could destroy the name of any individual simply by colluding simply by choosing to do so. That's the kind of power that they had. This was the Sanhedrin. These were the men that conspired and manipulated the Roman government and convinced them to execute Jesus Christ. They had power. And as we will see, that in the face of that kind of power and influence, Peter and John find no threat whatsoever. The influence of the Sanhedrin is of little to no concern to these two men. Key point number one. A faith-filled Christian is not threatened by cultural or social opposition. 
A faith-filled Christian is not threatened by cultural or social opposition. You know, interestingly enough, uh, Christians don't really think counterculturally anymore. This is not how Christians think. This goes completely against the way we think today. See, today, today, we think in terms of cultural conformity. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this about Christians, but they're doing everything they can to look and feel as much like the lost world and still be able to wear their Jesus t-shirts. I remember when I was in a high school ministry long ago, a couple churches ago, that uh, uh, I remember on a, so I grew up, let me just tell you a little something about myself. I grew up in the, in the heart of the gangster rap era, okay? And I'm telling you, I loved some gangster rap. All right, now we could talk about that some other time. You might not believe me, okay? But, but if we, like, like, I'm the type of kid who, like, I read the liner notes. I know who produced what, okay? Death Row Records was my favorite record label, okay? All right? And I remember one Sunday, they handed out a list uh, of, of music artists. They were like, if you like Bone Thugs and Harmony, <laughs> this is on a Sunday morning in the youth group, if you like Bone Thugs and Harmony, you might like Gospel Gangsters. That's a group. Do you guys know that? That's a rap group from the 90s, the Gospel Gangsters. You remember that? Yeah? Okay. All right, now that, that's, a, that's the absurd 90s version. That's the extreme version of this. But let me tell you something. As time progresses over the last 20 years, what we have seen is that Christians have gotten really good at just fitting in. They're not as awkward and clunky as they were in my youth group, okay? They're good at it. I saw a video recently of Justin Bieber doing shots with the pastor of Hillsong, Brooklyn. All right? Not just, not just shots. Taylor, stand up. Look. Look. Wedding shots together in the bar. Isn't that cute? That's, this is what they hit the pastor and Justin Bieber doing shots together in a bar. What? Where, where, what kind of time warp? Oh, wait a second, wait a second. This is Laodicea. This is Laodicea. And rather than being countercultural, Christians have chosen to conform to culture. This is what we've chosen to do. Christians are worldly. And we are worldly, listen. Not because we've been imposed upon. No, we prefer the world. We prefer it. We prefer it to the chastity of our relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of our soul. You know, the worst thing is that for the most part, Christians are completely silent as it concerns the gospel. That's the worst part. It's not that Justin Bieber is doing shots in the bar with his pastor for the whole world to see. The worst part is that they're not even close 
to sharing the divisive and powerful and forgiving nature of Jesus Christ with anyone. I mean, some Christians, they speak and they preach, but a lot of them, for most of them, it's a bastardized version of the gospel. It's a, it's a version of the gospel that's intended to be more palatable. And we like to say things like, well, I'm speaking life. You guys familiar with this term? It's real popular right now. Speaking life. Speaking life. Okay? Nothing wrong with speaking a little life, but what the heck do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean by speaking life? When I speak life, I speak the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the saving of souls. When you speak life, what do you speak? What do you mean by that, cultural Christian? What do you mean by that? You know, we used to sing this song when I was little called This Little Light of Mine. Man, this song. This song was so necessary to my development as a believer. This silly little song goes, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? You know this? Yeah. We can sing it. Who wants to sing it? You got to help me, Lisa, okay? Because I'm crying. I don't know. Okay? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm gonna let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Don't don't let Satan. Don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 says, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. That's ridiculous. Why would they do that? But they put it on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Why is it that we as Christians are mostly silent? Why do we hide our light? Because those within our sphere of influence prefer it that way. So we bow. Because those in our lives, who have influence over us, who do not like our gospel message, have impacted us so much so that we keep our mouths silent and shut. Why do we fail to speak the gospel boldly? Primarily because we have been conditioned by the social and cultural order that if we speak up, we will be rejected. And to that I say, so what? So Freaking what? Peter and John had been conditioned the same exact way. 
to remain silent. Had they not? Did they not grow up under the oppressive hand of the Sanhedrin and the religious order? That if they were to come in conflict with them, that they would be put down, oppressed and silenced? That they would no longer be a part of the, of the, the social order? They lived under the same exact rule, the same exact oppression. That is, until they were discipled by a man named Jesus Christ, and they were taught to be the salt of the earth. They were taught to be the salt of the earth. So what was the council's formal discrepancy? They were grieved. They were hurt. They were offended. They were offended that they, what, taught the people and preach through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This is what it boils down to, doesn't it? The world hates Jesus, and it despises the idea that he defeated death. It's absurd to them. It's foolish. It's ignorant. It's absurd. They hate it. And often, you know, we hear the Pharisees, and when we read the Gospels, we hear the Pharisees often compared to the legalists, don't we? Don't we hear that a lot? But here in this example, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they most closely sound like liberals. They sound like religious liberals. Oh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, Jesus rose from the dead. A miracle. The idea of the resurrection to many people is absurd. But listen carefully. Key point number two. Cultural climate and social pressure has absolutely no bearing on the potency of a faith-filled gospel message. It means nothing. Cultural climate and social pressure has no bearing on the potency of a faith-filled gospel message. Read verse 3 with me. He's your writing. You can, you can follow along. I'll read it. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now even tied. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So the Sanhedrin, they lay hold on the two apostles and they put them in a holding place. And all the while, outside, 5,000 people believe on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and are rejoicing and celebrating. Now listen to me. Why is it that inside, the religious few, the religious few are fuming? And outside those walls, thousands of people are crying in joy. Now I want to suggest something to you. It's because people need forgiveness. That was true then and it is true now. People need forgiveness. And the cultural climate and the social pressures have absolutely no effect on that. People need the Lord. They need the gospel message. And we carry it. What bearing does the cultural climate of UMKC have on whether or not 
You preach the gospel. Are you kidding me? Who do you serve? Your family might not like the fact that you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They might not like that. What difference does it make to you? What impact does that have on the potency of the gospel message? I would suggest it has none. Now listen. Verse 5. These men made a brazen declaration. That's what we're going to look at next. And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and elders and scribes and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, we don't know who those two guys are. Uh, Obviously, they're important. And as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, listen, by what power or by what name have ye done this? That's the question, right? So notice that they refer to the miracle as this. They won't even acknowledge that it was an actual miracle. Right? This thing happened. They don't want to call it a miracle. They call it this. Now, if this was an an honest examination and not a biased one, this would actually be a fair question. If something crazy like this happened, these men have the right, as the religious leaders, to ask, By what power and authority? Because you know what? Satan works miracles too. Right? This is a fair question, but listen to me. We know better. This is a biased question. Their question presupposes the answer, doesn't it? They know these men, and they know who they follow. But listen to me. For Peter and John, this question is an opportunity for them to, to what? To get out of the situation. This is their open door to avoid this persecution. If if Peter and John simply let the matter go, if they say any name, any name at all, besides Jesus, say Beelzebub, then all of this trouble, trouble would be lifted from them. But they refuse. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name, you want a name? That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Be it known unto you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, this is brazen, this is audacious, and it's absolutely fearless. And something, only someone filled with the Holy Spirit would say, Only someone filled with the Holy Spirit would say something like this. Now, now this this demands the question, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Ghost? This is the second time we've seen this. Okay, What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Ghost? Some would suggest that it means that the Holy Spirit, as an external agent, would come upon a person and cause them to do something 
that's apostolic in nature, sort of spiritual gifting, healing, prophetic word. This is how a lot of the charismatic church would define this today. That is not what's happening. And as we read the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, what we learn is that the filling of the Holy Spirit is when a person yields themselves to the Spirit that already dwells within them. See, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we learn that there is one baptism in the Spirit. One. It happens once. The Holy Spirit comes and He resides in you the day that you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the whole of the New Testament, as it concerns the Spirit, is that the Spirit lives inside you, inside you and seals you until the day of redemption. And to be filled with the Spirit is to be yielded to the Spirit. And guess what? Anyone can be filled. Anyone who has the Spirit inside of them can be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is simply to give control to the authority and the leading of God's Spirit with inside you. Now listen, to declare the name of Christ, even, know, even when you know it will be received with hostility, is something that we should all be willing to do, are you? Are you? And guess what? If you've been or are being discipled, then we are being prepared and are preparing for moments just like this. When the filling of the Holy Ghost will lead us to speak fearless words. You know, Jesus prepared them for, uh, for this through discipleship. Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, the verses are up here. But when they deliver you up, take no thought. Now this is, guys, listen to me. He tells the disciples, when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak. For it shall be given you in the, in the same hour what you shall speak. For it, for it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Luke 12, 11, And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. Luke 21, 14, Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what ye shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. See, listen, he advises them not to be concerned with what you will say. In other words, you don't need to be articulate. You just need to be yielded. You don't need to be articulate. You don't need to be masterful in your words to speak the gospel truth. You need to be yielded to the Holy Spirit. Key point number three. A faith-filled believer learns God's words in private. A faith-filled believer learns God's words in private so that the Holy Spirit can give them God's words in public. This is what discipleship is. This is three and a half years with Jesus. This is 40 days before he's ascended. This is what discipleship does. It prepares us so that when the time comes in the public setting, when yielded to God, the faith-filled believer will speak the words that God wants them to speak.
Next, they are boastful. They are boastful. You can, if you guys need to, th this PowerPoint will be online, so you can get it there if, if I'm moving too fast, but we're running out of time, and I want to make sure I cover ground here. Verse 11, a boastful gospel. Gospel. This is the stone. This is what they say. This is the stone which was set at not of you, of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. In other words, you're being replaced. This is what the prophets led to. This is what everything sits upon, Jesus Christ. Now listen, this is the point here. Verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. They take no credit for the healing of this man. It's the name of Jesus Christ has the power. Now listen to me. Our gospel ought to be a boastful one. Not boast, boastful of self, because just as Peter had nothing to do with this miracle, we have nothing to do with the power and the authority that God gives us on a day-to-day -day basis. We have nothing to do with it except for yielding. Psalm 44, 8 says, In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever, Selah. Key point number four, faith-filled believers boast only in the cross and the name of Jesus. Now watch yourselves because sometimes we are tempted to be boastful, aren't we? God begins using us and we can be tempted to be boastful. Any of us can fall prey to that. And we need to be careful that anytime God does anything, that we point towards heaven and say, not, not me, him. Not me, him. Now let's, before we close, we've got just a few minutes. I want to talk about a bold witness. Can we do that? Okay, so hang with me. Because I'm going to cover four key points. <laughs> what? <laughs> Anything can be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's examine Peter and John to see the testimony of their fearless witness. Can we do that? Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, first of all, key point number five, faith-filled believers are bold. Because their confidence is in God. Peter and John, they're bold. Why? Because their confidence was in God. Easy. Easy peasy. Right? Their confidence was in themselves. If their confidence was in themselves, they would be insecure just like you. If they were concerned about their reputation and whether or not they could be articulate and whether or not they could present themselves well and whether or not people would like them or reject them, they would be afraid just like you are. But they're not. They're confident in God. And so they speak boldly because it is not them that speaks. It is God through them. Many of us recognize that we lack boldness in our witness. Now only you can answer the question why. Only you, like, I'm not here to examine you. You're here to examine yourself. Only you can answer the question why. Do you struggle with confidence? Well, guess what? You're not alone. And the problem is, is that you're struggling with confidence. When you should be putting your confidence in the authority of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.3 3 says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit 
and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So you don't get to wrestle with your confidence and struggle with your confidence. Your confidence needs to be sourced in the personage of the Son of God. Next, they choose the foolishness of preaching. That's what they do. Verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. Key point number six. Faith-filled believers, confident in their authority, need not be intellectuals. Many of us recognize that we lack boldness in our witness, and only you can answer the question why. Only you can examine yourself and ask yourself why. Do you hesitate because you are intimidated by your lack of biblical knowledge? That you might not have an answer for the questions when the accusers come to you? And they ask you about, oh, I don't know, quantum physics. You know? What, what, what? You got to have an answer for everything? No, these men didn't. These men didn't. And yet they caused the, the Sanhedrin to marvel. 1 Corinthians, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound things which are mighty and base things of the world. And things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. You don't need to be the smartest person to have a powerful and bold witness for Jesus Christ. You don't have to have a grasp on every deep theological point. You don't have to be an apologist to speak the gospel message. You just have to be foolish enough to open your mouth. Verse 13, they needed to know him, and they needed to know him more. That was the point. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Whoa. That's a powerful point. Key point number seven. Faith-filled believers are faith-filled because of their fellowship with Christ. Right? Faith-filled believers are only faith-filled because they've spent time in the presence of Jesus Christ. You know, many of us recognize that we lack a bold witness And only you can ask yourself why. It's a point of self-examination. Do you lack boldness because your spirit thirsts for a relationship with Jesus Christ? Is your cup empty? Is the relationship God has called you to, is it missing from your life? If people can't see Jesus on you, it's because you haven't spent time with him. Anytime I give Will Mata a hug... I walk away smelling like whatever cologne that man is wearing. <laughs> the man wears it thick. And it's great. It's great. So if I am funky at all, I just go give him a hug and I walk away refreshed. <laughs> you know, faith comes from knowing Jesus Christ and our confidence is in Him alone. Peter, who once denied Christ in the presence of common accusers on the street, was now dripping 
and the authority of Jesus Christ in the presence of the religious rulers of the day. Once weak, now strong. The question is, have you been with Jesus? If you haven't, we all know. Next, the fruitfulness that silences the cynics. Verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Listen, 14, And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Key point number eight, The fruit of a faith-filled believer speaks for itself. It speaks for itself. Are you content in your witness? Is your basket full of the fruit of a bold witness? When people look at the impact of your life, do they see the fruit of a bold believer? Does that fruit shut their mouths? Is it the only argument you need, the fruit? The fruit of your life, is it the only argument you need? Because if you find yourself defending yourself a lot, then it's probably because there's not very many believers following you. Fruit shuts the mouth of the cynic. And all they're left with is vain and empty threatenings. Verse 14, and we'll close with this. And behold, the man which was healed standing with them. They could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For, they, uh, they, for that indeed a notable miracle had been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them, that they speak henceforth to no man in his name. Okay, now I don't have time to get in this, but there... This is a lot like what we see with Daniel when they're trying to put Daniel down in, in Babylon, right? And they conspire against him, so they're conspiring. Now, now here's the key point number nine. This is my last key point, I promise. I know we've gone over, and I appreciate you, okay? We don't need physical sustenance. We need spiritual sustenance, so bear with me. Verse 18 says, and they called, oh, sorry, key point number nine, before I get into verse 18, key point number nine, the threats of a lost culture only serve as a sign to us that we must speak all the more boldly. The threats of a lost culture only serve as a sign to us that we must speak all the more boldly. Does that sound radical? I'm sorry. I don't apologize for that. I was being facetious. We should open our mouths. Verse 18, listen. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach the name of Jesus. Oh. Oh. That's, that's, okay. That's what you got. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God. Judge ye. Go ahead. Judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them. Because of the people, for, the, for all men glorified 
God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. I'm sorry, sirs. We will speak Jesus. And if you choose to judge, so be it. And you know what? You know what? The conspiracy got worse, didn't it? Because Peter, Peter is murdered for his belief in Jesus Christ. The plot thickens as we go throughout the New Testament. Pretty soon the answer is, well, let's just kill him off. Did that work? You know, what I say? you know what I say to the culture that tells me not to open my mouth about Jesus Christ? Judge ye. Because I can only speak the things that I have seen and heard and I am forgiven and no one will shut my mouth. And if you lack that level of boldness today, then it is time to repent. And we will not close with music. We will pray. Can we do that? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the fact that you, in my weakness, have given me words to say that I might proclaim your name to the lost world. The place that I teach and work, that I speak about you. And I have those opportunities. And Lord, I just ask that you would never allow me to get away with fearful thinking. That anxiety would not rule my life. That insecurity would not dictate to me who I will be. My identity is sourced solely in you, and I need you to lead me in the way that I would go. Help me, God. I do not want my path. I do not want my words. I want yours. And I pray that for Kaya, and I pray that for MBT, Lord, that we might be made all the more effective and fruitful for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.